This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Hi and welcome to Higher Ed Heroes, our podcast series that discusses all those little things we can do in our university classroom. The little things that can make a big difference. My name is Seb and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, the ever so joyful Al. Thanks, Seb. I don't think any Scotsman should ever be described as joyful. Hi, everyone. The series is motivated by our belief that what matters to the student experience is what happens in our classrooms. But in our universities, we might talk a lot about teaching, but we tend to do so in terms of course design, teaching policy, teaching budgets. And what we don't often get a chance to do is talk about examples of good practice that can have a big impact. And that's the purpose of our podcast, to share those examples by having conversations with great teachers about the practices that they bring to their classroom, what they do to bring their classroom alive in the hope that it might inspire us. And we always want to have these conversations without using the kind of jargon that we hear in our teaching committees. So we have a buzzword free zone. We won't be using words like flipped classroom, blended learning or work integrated learning. And when we hear those words, which we think are better suited to our teaching committees, we have the buzzer, which hasn't been getting enough use in my view. No, 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 no. We hope the no buzzer will encourage us to talk in everyday terms about those small examples of great practice. And in today's episode, we venture to the southeast of Australia. And we do this in order to talk about the centrality of role plays and simulations in learning. And to do that, we are being joined by a very good former colleague of ours, Phil Orchard, who is an associate professor in international relations at the University of Wollongong, which, for those who are not familiar with the Australian landscape, is based very close to Sydney and right on the beach. Phil, welcome. Thanks, Seb, and thanks for having me on. Phil, in our podcast, we've talked about simulations before, but what makes your simulation stand out is the centrality of role-playing that you use within them. What is it attracts that attracts you to simulations and role-playing as a form of learning? That's a really good question, and I think to answer it, I need, actually need to step back a bit, even before I was an academic. Um, so before I did my PhD, I worked at the UN for a year. And then I came in and did my PhD and became an academic. And one of the things I always saw was the disconnect between the theories that we teach and the everyday practices I observed in the UN. And I don't want to sort of say the real world, and I'm using my fingers as quotation marks here, but the idea that our students like to see a connection between the theory and what they see as actually being real things that they'd be doing, whether it's in work or in future studies and so on. And I find that role plays and simulations are really great for exposing them to how theories, the big ideas of those theories, can help and be used in everyday circumstances. What I find remarkable, having been a colleague of yours and then here at UQ, but then having seen you go to Wollongong, is that throughout your courses, the kind of core theme is that you are using simulations. So, and you obviously haven't used one stock standard version of this. So maybe for our listeners, you can tell us, talk us through a number of the different types of simulations that you're using that your students are learning through. I use a number of different types, and I'd say both simulations and role plays or other forms of activities where they're engaging in practical use of information. Um, so one of the things I've started doing, I teach an undergraduate subject in war and humanitarianism. And as part of that, we do lectures, which are sort of the big picture. 
and then case studies in our tutorial program. And I've been using what are called conflict assessment frameworks uh, within the individual tutorials. These are things that are actually used by international organizations, by UN and government aid agencies, and so on. And they're basically tools for those groups to figure out how they can best manage aid programs and development assistance to make sure that conflicts don't restart in post-conflict societies. So what we do is we take this sort of modified version of a conflict assessment framework that's simplified, and students basically walk through it, looking at individual cases, and then determine whether they think that conflict's gonna break out again or not. So it's really useful in terms of then identifying actors, goals, and some of the key problems that our responses might face. So that's one form of exercise I do. The other form of exercise I do tends to be focused very much on simulations where we're doing uh, multiple days over through the tutorial program where students are experiencing something and it may be fake, it may be real. So when I say fake or fictional, um, I've got one simulation I do where they actually create a, a country called Zanda. And the idea of the simulation is the UN Security Council is investigating whether atrocities had occurred in this country and you're needing to manage the response to that investigation. Another one I do is based very much in reality, in the real world, and it's exploring uh, international humanitarian conference around the Rohingya situation. Uh, the Rohingya are uh, pe uh, people in Myanmar who have been pushed out, uh, many of them into Bangladesh, and it's been a major focus of the UN system since 2017. So there's a different models that I use, each of them anchored in reality or real practices, but also drawing on the theoretical content in my subjects for the students to learn it. And I need to confess here that I've been a part of one of these simulations. When when Phil was a colleague here in Brisbane, I heard wonderful things about these uh, classroom experiences, and he kindly let me sit in and participate in one. What Phil's not saying is just how much fun they are. They are a real exciting and real, you know, enjoyable classroom experience. I think students learn a lot from them, but they are also fun experiences. And students, you know, in some cases you can get with really wacky results. I've had coups. I've had assassinations. And in, in one simulation involving the UN, I even had the special representative secretary general get killed off, which is perhaps surprising because in real life that hasn't actually happened since 1948. Students get to play out these scenarios. And in some cases, the you know, they can really be wacky. In some cases, they really reflect real life. But in all cases, they're actually learning something from them. And one of the things I noticed when I was sitting in was how you expertly change the dynamic and the context. It's not a static event. It's a series of events that you change very quickly. And, and students are forced to almost reflect in a rapid way and, and act in a, a rapid way. And that's part of the excitement, I think, isn't it? I tend to do different approaches depending on the type of simulation. In some cases, they're stage-based. In some cases, they're very open negotiations. Um, this year, with everything being on Zoom, and we've been using Zoom for the simulations, what I've been doing is a lot where it's a bit more stage-based, just so all the groups, when they're off in breakout rooms and so on, can come back together and actually know what's going on. I want to zoom out a little bit and, and uh, refer to a wider research project that you've been involved with that looks into the use of simulations in the classroom. And you guys have been doing quite a bit of research on this. And, uh, you know, based on your findings there, but also based on your experiences, what are the key aspects that one should bear in mind when using simulations as a teaching tool in the classroom? 
Yeah, this was a great project um, that was actually led by Dr. Susan Bankey at the University of Sydney. And it brought together uh, colleagues across seven different universities who teach human rights issues. And we managed to get funding through an unfortunately now defunct Australian government program through their Office of Learning and Teaching. And so it actually brought us together and we were able to really go through and think about what all our best practices were around simulations and actually figure out a set of rules and actually help other people who might be interested in doing simulations who might not know how to get started, we actually produced two manuals for them. And I think the Sydney website's now down, but they're actually up on my ResearchGate site if, if anyone wants to actually look at them. And we're continuing to collaborate together. We just had uh, an article on our teaching practices out uh, late last year in an open source journal. One of the key things that came out of it was how you structure the simulation. And as I noted uh, before, you know, you can be fictional, you can be reality, both can have important learning outcomes, but they get structured different. Fictional sim simulations are a lot harder to get started initially because you're having to world build really. Whereas with real life simulations, they're easier to get started, but you find that you have to update them every year because obviously information changes. Maybe the conflict you were basing them on disappears or ideally ends in peace. And so you have to do some updates and uh, reflections on them. A couple of the other big things we, we found with that project was the idea of how you get students to actually participate within it. This is obviously a problem that a lot of us face, that students may not want to participate. They may be uh, concerned or they may be hesitant to speak out, even in a simulation type environment. And so we used a few different assessment regimes, and these I've kept doing within my subjects. And I vary them a bit depending on the type of simulation outcome. Uh, so with one of my simulations where it moves uh, forward uh, fairly chronologically, fairly clearly, what I do is I judge them both on participation, but then on a debrief session that we hold after the simulation, where I basically ask the students to reflect on what had happened within the simulation, what their own experiences were, as a character within that simulation in terms of what their group's objectives were, but then also what they found in terms of the simulation generally. And there it's a post-conflict situation. This is the Zanda one I referred to earlier. And it's basically the end question I ask everyone is, do you think the agreement you reached in the simulation is actually going to work? Do you think it's actually going to be a positive outcome? And they're actually really good at judging their own performance. In a lot of cases, you get that, well, we didn't get this. I just literally finished it a couple of weeks ago, my most recent run. And one of the groups was like, well, we're actually really concerned we couldn't get agreement that a peacekeeper mission was going to be deployed. And we thought that was a critical uh, missed outcome. For other simulations where they, they're managed a bit differently, what I find is having a participation grade may actually you know, lead to that hesitancy. And so what I do instead there is it's actually a written reflective essay that the groups together have to produce where they actually sit down together and they need to negotiate and talk to each other about what they think they learned from it. And we get very interesting, very positive uh, outcomes from those as well. That's an interesting assessment, a collective reflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I use a, a, an individual reflection in, in one simulation that I use, but I've, I've never heard the collective reflection. Mm -hmm. how, how does that actually work? How, tell us the pragmatics, Phil. How, how many, yeah. uh, uh, what's the percentage you give for it? How do you weight it? What's the criteria, mm -hmm. et cetera? Yeah, so with, with that particular piece of assessment, so it's worth 10% of their final grade, um, but that's the only way the simulation is actually adjudicated. And so what we do is after the simulation ends, they then have a week where there isn't any tutorial times, and they're encouraged to get together in their group to actually draft the response. And it's not long, it's 500 words. Um, so it's something that they can basically pull together in an hour or so. 
And usually what we do is we say, well, the tutorial room is available. Obviously, uh, this past semester, it's been them doing it all on Zoom. But what we do is we basically ensure that all the students are engaged and the groups can come back to us if there are students who just don't participate in the process at all and let us know about that, in which case we'll uh, talk to those students and look for other activities that they could do. But with the write-up, they sit down and they, they have key prompts that they should think about. So basically, what was your individual strategy? What was your group strategy? What did you, your group think about the outcome? Do you think it was successful or not? And how did you see this linking back to the literature and some of the theories that we've discussed within the subject? And what we get with the responses is a really deep engagement. We're always really impressed with them. I think it was last year, we ended up getting 90s on almost all the reflective essays because the students were really thinking about these questions and they were really building each other up as they drafted these to get really positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in terms of the simple mechanics, we use Turnitin. And what we do is we only have a single student submit the assignment, but on the assignment itself, they need to report all the students who were part of the group. And obviously we also have the records of that, so we can double check it. And that way they then get a single group mark, assuming that they all participated within it. It's a, a theme as well. I think reflection and simulation seem to really mm -hmm. sit well with each other because they do need the time, don't they, to think about this different classroom experience that they've had and it intrigues me doing it collectively. I think that would be quite beneficial. You know, we talk a lot about uh, simulations and practices and, and they sound so great. Yes, we understand they take a bit of time to set them up and a lot of work is involved. But I would like to ask you to reflect upon things when situations when things have derailed, when things have failed. Like what is it that that has happened and how did you respond or what are the kind of recommendations you have in order to prevent simulations from derailing. And obviously they can derail. You can run into a situation where, hey, no one's talking or participating. Um, I had the issue, uh, my most recent simulation, the final day of it was the day of the US election. Um, and we're doing it all remote. And so all the students are basically, they have one eye looking at the results. <laughs> and to be frank, so did I. Mm -hmm. One of the things is you, you can do prompts to push them a little bit. An idea we developed as part of the OLT team uh, was the idea of wildcards. So these are basically pre-prepared for my simulation newspaper articles that you basically drop into a simulation. So say it's gone quiet or say, hey, maybe they're all cooperating. Maybe everything's working out really well and you want to increase the tension a little bit just to see what happens. And you can drop in these stories. So in one case, it's a newspaper story alleging that the government did engage in widespread atrocities and then a mass grave had been found. In another example, it's the uh, local trade union complaining about government corruption. Um, another one has that it's, in fact, the rebel group that had committed human rights abuses and so on. And so what you can do is you can sort of drop these in and you can also seed them. So in sometimes what it is is, well, you've just received a, a call from a BBC reporter who would like to confirm the story they're about to run. And here's a copy of the story. So suddenly one person or one group has the story and others don't. And how do they respond to it? And you can basically see where they may have been a bit of stasis. Suddenly that triggers and helps things. The other thing I try and do is coax participation. So if you see that there are group members. So the groups initially meet together and they discuss and build up their common strategies. This is an exercise called tactical mapping, where they're basically trying to decide what their goals and aims are as a group, in addition to what their individual ones are, and each of them have their own role. So for example, referring back to the Zanda simulation, uh, there are four groups. There's the Zandan government, there's Zandan domestic civil society, including remnants of the rebel group. 
There's international civil society, ma major actors like Médecins Sans Frontières or the International Committee of the Red Cross. And then there's the UN Security Council. And of course, the UN Security Council has a great degree of power. And it's represented by states that are both elected members as well as the permanent members who can also veto everything. And so in each of those groups, they have their own role. So if you're a member of the Zandan government, you might be the president, you might be the uh, chief of the de defense forces and so on. And you think about what your own role is within that group and then what your aims are so and so on are. And the tactical mapping gives them a chance for them to all talk together in the group and figure out some common strategies. And so even if someone's really hesitant to be involved, they then get triggered and get engaged with it. So I'm going to ask a bit of a curveball question here, which is based on the fact that Phil and I are, are friends. And I know, because we share a lot of books, that you are a big science fiction person, Phil. Yes. And you mentioned the phrase world building mm -hmm. previously. Do you think that that is a, a, an important factor? Because, you know, Seb was talking about his Blue Zimbala simulation. You've got your own world. And you are effectively world building to some extent you must enjoy that dimension of it in terms of putting together this alternative reality is that part mm -hmm. of your enthusiasm for it yeah well it, it's funny particularly with zanda zanda actually started it was my doctoral supervisor brian job at ubc uh, where I was doing one of his courses there, and he ran the simulation. And as he afterwards said to me, it's basically, I drew it on the back of a napkin. It was like Xanda, and like, and it was a very simple and simple idea. And I've effectively run with it and turned it into a much more expansive one. It's quite funny because I still share my updates with Brian, and he's been using it, continues to use it at UBC in his undergraduate subjects. It is fun. But even the real world ones can be fun too, because you can think through the mechanics. Like one of the things with the International Humanitarian Pledging Conference that I'm using in my Rohigny simulation, you're thinking, how do you pull together the different groups? How do you ensure that they have the knowledge that they're basically in that room for that simulation or on the Zoom for the simulation in which they have enough knowledge to mimic what the group behavior is? So, you know, one of the groups are Rohingya refugees and they've received content about a lot of the problems refugees face. One of the groups are internally displaced persons who are still in Myanmar. Then you have the Myanmar government and then the Bangladeshi government, as well as the UN country team and then the international donor community. And so each of those groups has sort of their own vision and you put it together and what do you then ask them to do? Well, think about this conflict. What, what do you think is most critical here? And obviously I come in there with my own ideas, but it's fascinating to see what they'll come up with. Uh, where they'll negotiate positive outcomes, or they might actually run across problems that I'd never really thought about before. It does feel like it's a combination, the essence of it is a combination of that creativity, mm -hmm. imagination, but also detail and structure and mm -hmm. real planning and putting yourself in the student's shoes. Mm -hmm. I think I, I can see through our Zoom connection here that, that Phil is nodding and, you know, having experienced Phil as a colleague, uh, you can, I, I know, and you could experience this just with us talking here, is that Phil is loves simulations, right? <laughs> it's like you, you just throw him something and, and Phil is just jumping at that mm -hmm. with, with all his, um, you know, pedagogical um, passion here. Phil, if we were to think about wider lessons that you might be able to share with our listeners, many of whom might not be 
in the discipline that you are in and who might be thinking about introducing a simulation into their courses. What's the kind of big takeaway recommendation or advice that you would have for them? I think I'd say two things. Firstly, you know, it is a difficult process to set one up. Um, it takes time to generate it. Like with my simulations, I tend to give them uh, an eight to 10 page handout to read prior to the simulation starting, which will have a lot of detail in it. And obviously pulling something like that together, it takes a, a lot of time. It, it lets you be creative. It lets you be engaged. And obviously with a simulation, it can be any set of real world events. One of the things that we found with the OLT project is it really works well to have a simulation around a trigger event, but that trigger could be anything. Obviously, in my case, it's the UN Security Council meeting on Zanda, or it's because a pledging conference is going to happen. But that could literally be anything that comes out of your own academic work or your own interests. And the other reason I'd say, you know, do it, if you want to try it, do it, is because they can be really fun both for our students and for ourselves. Like I enjoy doing it because I get to learn something and I get to see how the students involve, engage. And um, with the OLT project, we actually surveyed everyone who did our simulations. And then we waited a year and we went back and surveyed them and found that we got really good results. This is all in our, our recent uh, article from last year. And we found in particular, the students pointed to the idea that they had significantly improved skills in collaboration and negotiation following their simulations. And this was them responding a year after they had done the simulation activity. So, you know, it's fun, but it's also really anchoring these skills that we know are critical for our students to use. That's one of the big things. It lets them apply their knowledge in innovative ways, and it helps to link together what they've learned in lectures with real or, or imagined world, obviously. But also it helps to, them to anchor the knowledge and to make it real for them. Brings me back to what I think we started off with, putting theory to practice, whether this is real world or fictionalized and imagined. Phil, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. And if you have heard anything you liked and you would like to engage further with us, please uh, get in touch with us through our Facebook site, through Twitter or through Instagram. Thanks for joining us on High Red Heroes and we look forward to your company again. 